Welcome to episode 306 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back to another episode. Brian, this is a good one. I'm excited about this. We've got some listener questions. Yeah, we actually have a lot to talk about and not a lot of time to do it in. So let's get right to it. And this week, we don't have a sponsor, so we can jump right in. But if you or your company or, or products are interested in sponsoring Design Details, we have slots opening up in September. And then through the rest of the fall and winter, we would love to help your team or company hire designers or tell people about a new product you're launching or anything else. So just get in touch, DM us on Twitter, Design Details FM, or you can shoot me an email, hi at brianlevin.com, and we'll, we'll get you taken care of. So that's it for sponsors. And we've got a follow-up this week, Marshall. Big news. So I was perusing our listener statistics the other day and realized that this month we crossed 5 million total downloads for Design Details. It's a nice little milestone. Wow. That's a big number, Brian. I, I, I didn't contribute to very many of those numbers, but I'll take credit for it. Actually, you did. The number that you've contributed is, is not insignificant. I think uh, we'll get the final tally at episode 308 because that'll be your first full year. I think that'll be a nice oh, okay. nice time to check. But I think, I think it's going to be over a million downloads since you joined the pod. Man, I've, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I was like, a year. Wow, I've been doing this a year. Time flies, Brian. Time yeah. flies. Yeah, man. I think episode 309 will technically be... Actually, yeah, 309 will technically be your one year. So we'll we'll follow up in a few weeks. But yeah, I think it's going to be over a million, which is great. And uh, yeah, we crossed 5 million this month. So thank you everyone for listening for all these years. It's been a lot of fun. Hopefully the next 5 million will be just as good. Even funner. Even, fun, even funner <laughs> and more grammatically correct. <laughs> so we packed like three episodes into a very short recording time, which meant that we didn't have really the opportunity to do any follow-up because the episodes hadn't happened yet and we couldn't do news because the news hadn't happened yet in the future. So now we're back in real time uh, so we can do things like news. Brian, yeah, something really cool happened this morning. Talk to me. I saw that you retweeted friend of the pod, Kevin Gutowski. He launched a plugin for Sketch called Truncat. Great name. Love it. Uh, I think props to Mark Edwards for the name. But Truncat. It's it's a truncation plugin for text strings in Sketch. I don't know about you. It's but so good. <laughs> I've needed this. I didn't know I needed this. Not in the forefront of my mind, but but I have needed this for a long time. It does. It does head truncation, tail truncation, center truncation, which he calls belly truncation. <laughs> which I guess that's the that's the, the cat. cat. Yeah. 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 But uh, I'm I've downloaded this immediately. I will be using this everywhere. Yeah. So here's here's what I don't think is possible today, and this is what I retweeted because I want this functionality in Figma. But what I really really want is for that plugin to live as a property on a text layer, so that the underlying string doesn't get mutated, but the truncation will just happen depending on on a resize, right? Truncate to size. Yes. But this plugin is a perfect like proof of concept of why this is so useful. So anyways, I retweeted it and begged Figma to add this. I'm starting to rack up a, a small list of things that I tweet at Figma that they end up shipping. So hopefully this will be one that I can uh, put some Twitter pressure on. But it, it would be really nice. <laughs> Throw your tweet around, as yeah. it were. <laughs> as it were. Anyways, so great plugin, Kev. It's really, really nice. Well done. And the other little bit of news is, so we mentioned earlier, iOS 13 developer beta has been out for a while, and I was going to jump on that bandwagon at some point, and we were going to talk about it. 
The bandwagon has been jumped on, Brian. I'm on board. Developer Beta 4 is is what I have installed. I'm a daily driver. I've been using it for two days. And so the review process has begun, and we will talk about it soon. Yeah. Fun little fun fact. I've been on the 12.4 beta for a long time, and in the two days I've been using iOS 13, it's less buggy than the 12.4 beta. So take that for what it is. But uh, yeah, so so more iOS 13 news coming and our, our thoughts on it in the future. But in the short term, know that we are starting to use it. I think, Brian, you, you took a plunge <laughs> as we started talking, no? As we are recording, I have 27 minutes remaining on the installation. So <laughs> I'm, I'm taking the dive. I got the Marshall Bach stability stamp of approval. So... Uh-huh. I have watchOS 6, too, which I felt as long as I was doing one, I might as well do both. So <laughs> might as well go all You have a watch, in, right? But not your, yeah. But have you done your Mac yet? No, I'm not. I'm not doing macOS. I, I, I need that to work. <laughs> I, ca- I cannot have that not work. Yeah, especially with Sketch being a little bit finicky between software updates. Yeah. No, thank you. I'll, I will stay current on that one. So that's news. Let's get into uh, let's get into some, some listener questions, Brian. All right, I'll start us off, Marshall. I got a good one for you. So this listener question comes from Samia, who DM'd us on Twitter and asks, "What is the difference between a toggle switch and a checkbox?" And Samia sent some context of a couple articles that they'd been reading about the difference between a checkbox and a toggle. And uh, it still seems like there's a lot of places that you run into their implementation being inconsistent with like the so-called rules of when to use which. So Marshall, walk me through the difference between a toggle switch and a checkbox. When should you use which one? And is there maybe like a handy rule of thumb or mental model to make it a really easy decision at design time? Yeah. So this is actually a much tougher question than it appears on the surface, but and after reading uh, this article that Samya sent in, yeah, okay. So, so I think probably Samya knows if she's read this article, she has a good understanding of it because this is what I'm going to say. So, this is for Samya. This is for anybody else who has the same curiosity. So, checkbox versus toggle. I think probably the main difference between the two. There's a couple, but the main difference between the two is that a toggle is binary, meaning it has two states. And a checkbox is trinary, meaning it has three states. Ooh, so, not, yeah. not immediately obvious, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, a toggle is on and off, right? But a, but a checkbox can be enabled, disabled, or like an intermediate state. Indeterminate. Yeah, indeterminate. Or, yeah, it's kind of like some but not all. Yes. So you've, you've probably seen this before in a... A tree, like a hierarchy of checkboxes, or maybe in a select all action. So if you have a list of things with checkboxes next to them, and you've selected some of them, but not all of them, the select all checkbox might look like it might have a horizontal line on it or, or some sort of indeterminate state. That's what we're referring to when we talk about that. So if you were to click it, then it would go to an, an all on state and select all of those things in the list, click it again, it turns off turns off everything in the list. Right. Make sense? Yep. All right. So that's like the main difference is the the two state versus three state. I think probably the next most important thing is what I referred to already, which is a list. So if the if the items that have checkboxes next to them are multi-select, 
you would want to use a checkbox for that every time. Not a toggle checkbox. Um, toggles don't make sense in that case. So for example, if you have uh, settings for uh, notifications or something and you want to, to use uh, multiple modes of, of sending that notification, like email, SMS, push, right? Yep. I would use checkbox for those, not a toggle because that's a multi-select situation. Does that particular scenario change for you if it's on desktop versus mobile? Or would you use a checkbox on mobile as well? Depends. If it's in settings, settings wants to be toggles more than checkboxes. Usually that's my, that's kind of like the vibe I get from, from having used OSs for a long time. I don't know. Is that, is that an unreasonable assumption to make? No, I mean, I feel like iOS made this toggle popular or, or like a common pattern and it sort of worked its way back into the web. And yeah. It always feels a little bit weird on the web just because I think it was designed to be a gigantic tap target and checkboxes, you don't need that because you're using a mouse, which is much more precise. So that's why toggles have always felt clunky to me on the web. But also conversely, seeing checkboxes on mobile devices feels weird because it just doesn't feel native to the platform. It feels like, oh, I'm for sure looking at a web view right now. Mm -hmm. So that's just the visual element of it, like ignoring the indeterminate state. And maybe that's what I was referring to with settings, because I I mostly am like messing with settings on mobile things. (laughs) Yeah. When I when I think of a toggle switch, I think of like the iOS toggle switch or the Android toggle switch. Right. Yeah. I think probably part of why it feels weird on Web 2 is because you kind of need to implement the drag state or like the drag gesture. Otherwise, you do like a weird selection thing on web, right? Normally, just clicking it and animating to on and off is 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 fine, but like you kind of want to account for that that drag affordance, right? Yeah. So here's what I'll say about that particular thing: is when you're implementing a toggle on the web, in order to make it accessible, you are always using a checkbox under the hood, and then you're just adding custom styling to it. Yeah. So I think that says a lot about like when you should use a toggle versus a checkbox. Is the, <laughs> They overlap a lot, and there is an aesthetic preference here, especially like just considering that case of the web where you're literally using an input type equals checkbox, but just (laughs) overriding the checkbox styling. Yeah, yeah. The platform that you're building it on may beg one over the other. It's true. This article also mentions one of the key properties of when to use checkboxes versus toggles being, is this part of a form? Like, is there a submit function to the screen that you're looking at. So for example, if you are customizing your email settings and then there's a save button, it might make more sense to have checkboxes and then save is the action. Whereas toggles, a toggle behaves in such a way that it feels like by changing the value itself, it will save without needing to confirm in a secondary click by clicking a save button, for example. Like toggling the checkboxes, you assume you need to submit the form the toggle, there's not necessarily that assumption. It feels like it happens instantly, right? Yeah, the, and that might also be a function, or this might go back towards the, the OS versus web thing, where in web, like you're on a page that you need to like save, unless it's unless it's doing some you know well-designed shit where it's actually like updating as you change stuff. My assumption on most web pages is like, until I say, okay, do it, it isn't done. Right. Right. Whereas with the with a switch, I assume as soon as it moves from one state to the other, that change has has happened on the back end. Exactly. Yeah. I think the last thing I would point out, and by the way, we'll have a link to this article in the show notes that gives a much more in depth 
like list of scenarios of when to use checkboxes versus toggles. But one thing that I would say is the the content surrounding the checkbox and the toggles makes a big difference. For example, if you have a list of things that you are trying to select, like let's say you're signing up for service and it wants you to select topics that you're interested in. If there's a heading that says, select topics you're interested in, it sort of makes sense for the children of that selection to have checkboxes, right? Like these are the three of five topics that I care about. Yeah, a multi-select list. But I feel like it's that title that sets the context. Yeah, it's this multi-select list. Versus if you didn't have that, you would need inherently to change the label to say, I am interested in topic X. And in that case, a toggle might actually make more sense. Yeah, show me topic X. Show me topic X, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the content of the labels or even just surrounding content, like the title of the page or the title of the form might inform the decision as well. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, it's a demand versus a request, right? Yeah. If it's a request, then you're going to expect a list. Like, you know, please select your things, right? Or, but if the if the verbiage of the of the row or the you know the title of the action is show me this do this right then that's that's kind of a toggle yeah usually and I think that goes back to the the expectation of a toggle being immediate upon activation right mm-hmm. and you know <laughs> the funny thing is I can think of counter examples to every single one of these things like the thing I just said that isn't necessarily true right like I can think of examples where you use a checkbox for that exact thing uh, depending on the context but. In general, I think these these rules are accurate. Cool. Well, hopefully that was helpful. And we'll have links to the articles that Samia sent us as well. Um, I th- thought those were useful. So check the show notes. Uh, otherwise, that's toggles versus checkboxes. Anything else? No. That's a that's a good question, though. It really made me... I had to think about it for quite a while. And, and in my early thinking... Every definition I came up for one, when I thought about the other, it applied to the other as well. So I yeah. was like, um, shit. I mean, I think <laughs> that probably leads to the frustrating answer of like, it depends on the context, it depends on the platform, and it perhaps depends on even the, the implementation details of like, are things being saved on change or is there a submit action? Like, all those things will factor into whether you should use one versus the other. So <laughs> we need to make merch that just says, it depends. <laughs> Uh, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> no. Tweet at us if you want a shirt that says it depends with some sort of fun <laughs> it's, graphic. It's, it's the answer to every question. <laughs> I'd actually kind of dig a, a hoodie that just says it depends with a period uh-huh. in like a nice clean sans serif font, maybe like white on a black hoodie or something. I'm, I'm not the person to contact about fonts, so I'll let you choose <laughs> okay. that one. I'm terrible at typefaces. All right, so we got another listener question. This one comes from Hubert. Uh, a designer at Slack who lives in Vancouver, Canada, who has given us permission to list all of these personal details about <laughs> themselves. <laughs> so Hubert, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Hubert asks... It's, uh, it's Hubert. Hubert, yeah, maybe. No, I'm, I'm joking. I it's mean, probably Hubert. I don't know. There's French people in Canada. True, like, true. Uh, actually, yeah, Canada could be. I was joking, but if it's, who knows? If it's Hubert and, I, and I'm saying Hubert, I'm going to sound like such a dummy. (laughs) All right. Well, anyways, we gave it our best shot. We said both options. So I'll go with Hubert for the duration of this question. Hubert is recently focused on accessibility and how to design for it and has become convinced that today's design industry purposefully ignores accessibility standards to protect what is considered beautiful or tasteful. So here's the question. Have you ever felt like our designers' egos are getting in the way of designing for everyone and that no matter how hard we try, we as an industry will never be able to fully adopt accessibility as a core value of product design. And some additional context here is that at Slack, Hubert is starting to feel like the 
quote unquote accessibility guy on on their team and the reputa- and, and this person's reputation as a strong visual designer is starting to suffer from it because they're defending solutions that are not necessarily the most quote unquote designy. So I think this is a great topic accessibility in general. The problem with it is it is very, very broad. And there's a lot of things that we could be talking about when we say accessibility. So I'll maybe start with what I think this listener is trying to get at, which is the more aesthetic, I'm guessing type size, contrast, color, like those sorts of things. But of course, there's a million other types of accessibility we could be talking about in terms of different impairments that are being designed for or input mechanisms or even output mechanisms. So here's my take on this is that there is a weird paradox where the things that are considered quote unquote aesthetic or beautiful tend to skew towards lower contrast, smaller type sizes, lighter colors, maybe not as readable, but it looks nice. Uh, does that make sense, Marshall? Like, oh yeah, do yeah. Do I have this sort of trope accurately described? Yeah. So I I just went through into my accessibility settings in my phone and went to display and text size and uh, turned on increase contrast, which is certainly an accessibility feature that that you know increases the contrast between foreground and background colors, and it doesn't look as nice. You know? Yeah. What is it about that that doesn't look as nice, the higher contrast? Um, I don't know. I think, I mean, well, the colors change, right? Like the nice blue that we're used to turns to like almost a purple. And there's a lot of little tweaks that, that happen. And in general, it just, for my eye, it, it doesn't look as nice, but it's a thing that needs to happen, right? Like this is better. This is like inarguably better to use. Yeah. Well, I, I can also throw out an example of when I've been guilty of this even today. So I was working on a side project and I sent you screenshots of it, Marshall. And your initial reaction was like, oh, your borders are not dark enough. Your type is does not have enough contrast. Like immediately. I squinted and I was like, mm, nope. <laughs> and it was like, ah, oh, shit, you're right, but it looks nice. I'm a bad designer. <laughs> so, <laughs> but then, I don't know. The thing that you mentioned to me about that was you've been staring at high contrast and high accessibility designs for so long through what you're working on at YouTube that you're just used to it now. And I think that the getting used to it factor is is a big piece of this is we've spent a long time designing these low contrast things, perhaps on a retina MacBook or designing for, you know, high DPI screens, iPhones, things like that. Mm -hmm. And we've just gotten used to being able to see low contrast things. And it's not until you really use a crappy old monitor or an old phone or a low DPI screen that you really realize, oh shit, I can't actually see any of the borders that I've designed on my screen. And so once you realize that, then it becomes really obvious. It's like, okay, well, I need to be able to see it. So of course, everyone else needs to be able to see it and you just adjust the values accordingly. And then of course, there's all the actual tooling to help you do this. Like there's actual accessibility guides for contrast that that you should be using. Mm -hmm. Just like drop a screenshot or, you know, put two hex colors and it'll tell you what the contrast is, all that. Yeah, I'll even shout out Contrast, which is a Mac toolbar application that Sam Sophus and MDS made. And uh, it's great. You just put in two hex codes and it'll tell you if it passes or fails. And if it passes, it'll give you the uh, the ratio, the, the ratio, the score. So anyway, I'm curious if you've felt this similar paradox or this push and pull in your work, either at YouTube or just in the past more generally, like the things that look nice on a really high end screen are not necessarily accessible. And then when you start moving towards the world where it's accessible, 
it just doesn't feel as aesthetically pleasing and you're not really as happy with how it looks. Yeah, I, I don't run into this in my day to day because it's a it's a thing we focus on, right? It's built into our systems to do this and we can't launch anything that doesn't satisfy accessibility requirements. But I definitely, when I'm using third-party apps that are made for much smaller audiences, I I definitely notice it where I'm like, oh, this wouldn't fly, this wouldn't fly, that contrast ratio is too, this, this text, uh, this font size is way too small, like, this would never fly, but hey, they, you know, it's a small app made by one person and they have, you know, a, a couple hundred thousand users, like, they probably don't need to focus on that kind of stuff, or it isn't a priority, right? But then I think about, well, of those couple hundred thousand people that are using this app, there's a small but not insignificant percentage that, that could very well use those features if they were implemented. So I don't know. It's always in the back of my mind. I'm always thinking about accessibility. And I think being able to make the, the sacrifice of like, yeah, it's not as sexy, but boy, it's so much more usable. <laughs> you know, maybe it's an empathy thing or a, yeah, I don't know if that's an ego thing necessarily so much as an empathy thing of just like, knowing how much it means to somebody for for an app that was otherwise unusable to become usable, you know? Yeah, I think we are on the same page here. And I guess all I can recommend from a like color and type perspective is, you know, there's some pretty baseline or standard minimum type sizes that you should be using. iOS, the human interface guidelines have all of those type sizes. And then they also include specs for dynamic type sizes for people who do have that accessibility option enabled. So that's a pretty sensible default, and it seems like a lot of those features you get for free when you're developing for iOS anyways. The web is a little bit more of a wild, wild west, but if you use tools like Contrast, think about like a minimum readable size of 16 pixels on the web. Like These kinds of rules of thumb will probably get you 90% of the way there. But I think there's a lot more beyond this, and Marshall, I know you had some examples you want to talk about other accessibility things that are issues that you've noticed sort of becoming a trend. So maybe we can jump into those now. Yeah. So one of the first things I thought about when you uh, when we saw this question come in was tab bars. Mm. I think I think this is a perfect example of like sexy over usable, mm-hmm. right? Where tab bars should have labels. Okay, this is a lesson I learned really early on when I first joined Google. When I first like started for real in the biz, I wanted everything to be like just icons, right? Like no labels, just icons. Yeah. And I had engineers who had been there for a long time who kept saying like, you know, labels better than an icon and an icon with a label is better than an icon. Like you need to put a label on here somewhere. Like just a word is better than just an icon, right? Like, but include labels. And I was like, no, 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 you know, doesn't look as pretty. Look how pretty. Yeah. Minimal. Yeah, exactly. And that those things weren't very usable. And we got user feedback saying as much. And, you know, it only took a couple times of having that rammed into my head, both from people who knew better and from the users themselves before I was like, okay, maybe I should probably label things. And so, you know, uh, there's kind of a trend now that actually even larger apps that are used by millions and millions of people have stopped labeling their, their tab icons which to me seems crazy. Like, unless you are 100% sure, certain, that every single one of your users knows exactly what the glyph means in the tab bar, like, or anywhere, unless you are absolutely sure that users know what this icon is, you need to have a fucking label under there, right? 
and people don't. And that's a big accessibility thing. <laughs> like it doesn't seem like it, but that's like a huge accessibility thing. Let me let me push against you here for a minute. So okay. what do you think about apps trying to removing those labels, but doing so in, in such a way that one tap on any of those tabs would very quickly indicate what that surface is used for? And, and just build up that muscle memory over time. So yeah, the, the first time a person uses the app, maybe it's a little bit confusing. But then the second time onwards, it's like, oh yeah, that hashtag icon is where I go to discover things on Twitter or something. Yeah, I mean... This is yeah, like th this is like a an emergent label, I guess is what I would call this, right? So like I tap on the bell and Twitter, and I see that the top label in the nav bar says notifications. Okay, this is notifications. Okay, this one is messages. It was an envelope. I don't know what that means. Okay, messages, right? Yeah, I mean it's fine, I guess. <laughs> this <laughs> is better than not, nothing. It, it's like the middle ground, right? It's like still not yeah. as good as having the label. But it becomes immediately obvious what it should be once you tap into it. Although there are apps where the bottom icons act like make no sense. I think in Twitter's case, a bell has become, you know, pretty common metaphor for notifications. Yeah. But there are less obvious glyphs that people use where it's like, I don't even know if I want to tap on that to discover what's there because it's so unobvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and Twitter is a good example of the caveat I gave earlier, which is like, okay, a home, a magnifying glass, a bell and an envelope. Like those are those are pretty straightforward glyphs that people know what they mean, right? Home means home, right? This is like the main surface of the app. The magnifying glass is search. The bell is notifications. The envelope is messages, right? Like th th those are common. So so that's maybe the, not a good example to use for this, but like it's certainly been used in, in other things where it's not necessarily as obvious. But this is what I was saying. Like you better be sure this shit is fucking obvious if you take away that label and having the emergent label helps as well. So users can confirm that their assumption is correct. But yeah, you take away the label, people are scared to tap on it. It's it's a strange thing. You and I may not be scared to tap on unlabeled icons and, and click around and see see what's going on, but most people aren't that brave. Well, let me hit you with a hypothesis here, and I'm curious if you agree or not. It seems to me that the bigger an application gets or the more popular it becomes, the more likely it is for them to remove the labels from their tab bars. And examples that come to mind are immediately obvious. Twitter, Twitter, Instagram, Messenger, Facebook. They've all dropped the labels from the tab bars. And I'm wondering if that's because they're just so big and so many people use it that it just doesn't matter anymore. Or if it's really that they've found you know, the perfect glyph that maps to that, that view. Uh, what do you think? Well, my initial reaction would be to argue the opposite, right? It's like the bigger your organization is, the more users you have, the more accessible you should be, the more obvious you should be about your things because there's going to be new people joining your platform that they might have never owned a phone before, right? Like the more reach your company has, the more likely it is you're going to be encountering people who are newer to the internet, right? Yeah, exactly. So you should be more obvious in, in the things that you do. So but at the same time, like you, you gave four examples of apps owned by two companies, right? Sure. So I'll give you two more companies, Apple and Google. And both <laughs> of those companies use labels on the tab bars. Yeah. So, yeah. so I don't know, 50-50, I don't know. And, and again, like the emergent label, like finding out what it is after you've tapped on it is a good fallback, I guess. But, you know, labeling in, in situ is, is the, the preference. Did I pronounce that right? In situ, I-N space S-I-T-U, like I in know, place. I've never heard that before. It's Latin, Brian. Get with the times. <laughs> Catch up. <laughs> Learn this dead yeah. language. I guess to circle back around to this question is, you know, 
are designers' egos getting in the way of, of designing really accessible products? And it seems like the answer is just, it depends. And there seems to be some organizational maturity to, to this, right? Like, I think that for a lot of newer designers and, and even actually more senior designers, there's a lot of things about accessibility that are unobvious or there are new APIs that need to be learned. And it's just more research that needs to be done. And I think that it's research that should be done. But for somebody that's just starting out and doesn't hasn't had enough time to absorb all of that knowledge, you know, for example, it might not be super obvious that you should include area labels on emojis if you're using them within spans on the web. Like you need to label what the emoji is so that screen readers can describe the emoji since they can't render or something like that. And like those those APIs on DOM nodes, like the area label and labeled by like those kinds of things are just things that you learn over time and with experience and i honestly haven't really seen them taught in beginner contexts like the beginner context is always just render the thing to the page and then later on you learn oh there's actually a way to render it on the page and then have a way for it to be read properly or or viewed properly at different screen sizes and things like that so i think it's just a matter of time and you know like the industry we always say that it's young but it, it is and there's a lot of young people designing for applications and websites myself included and there's just still more to learn and i think it seems like it will continue to get easier just as as operating systems and platforms basically raise the bar by default for everybody thinking through you know some of the ios and mac os demos that we saw at wwdc this year like a lot of the, the APIs are just baking in so many accessibility tools by default that it will get better over time. But yeah, then then you just fall back to the aesthetics and the visuals. And I think that, you know, it's something we'll get used to. Well, I think, uh, yeah, something, something to keep in mind too. And I think maybe one of the reasons for this, or at least certainly a reason for, for me back when I made the mistake of just wanting to make things pretty and not usable is that I hadn't fully internalized the fact that like pretty is not perfect and pretty is not the goal. The goal is not pretty. The goal is usable. That's first function over form, right? And maybe maybe that's the reason for some of this is it's like the the goal for for these designers. It's not necessarily ego. It's just I want to make something beautiful, right? And and subtle color differences and like, you know, really airy looking things are like are beautiful, but they're not necessarily usable. So check those contrasts, make sure you're including alt, like alt descriptions on all of your images and buttons and stuff so that people who can't see those buttons can have them read to them and stuff like that. Like basing your toggle switches on a checkbox, like what Brian was saying earlier. You know, all these things matter. Yeah. Especially when you realize just how much it means to the people who would otherwise be unable to use your product. Like empathy is a big part of it for me. I mean, that seems like the perfect place to leave off is, you know, go talk to people that have problems with low contrast, small type sizes, like go talk to them and watch them get frustrated trying to read your screens. And then even alternatively, go buy an old monitor, like don't use a 5k monitor to design your iPhone apps for once and just see what it feels like to to look at your designs on a non-retina, like maybe not super high contrast screen, it, it will fix itself because you won't be able to use your own product. So yep. dog food. And then the last thing I would say is, so our, our listener, Hubert, did send a link of a blog post that they wrote for the Slack.design blog. 
And so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And the title of that is Accessibility, a Powerful Design Tool. And I think this is a nice take on how they've approached accessibility within Slack and, and gives some good examples. So yeah, maybe there's more specific questions that people would have that we could jump into in the future. And we should probably also, this would be a good guest topic as well to get somebody who's a little bit more versed, at least than I am, or like has experienced more things. I wish we could talk to someone from Apple about this, but I assume that's all hush hush. I don't know. But I, w- I would say to Hubert or Uber, whatever your name is, uh, sorry. I would say, <laughs> sorry. I would say if you're starting to feel like the quote unquote accessibility guy on your team, that is not a bad thing. That is a thing to be proud of. Do not be ashamed of that. Be proud of that. All right. So thank you so much for those listener questions. Let us know what you thought. If we missed anything, accessibility is a broad topic. We certainly didn't cover everything. So let us know what we missed on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. Uh, yeah. We need feedback and and ideas here. So keep that coming. And I assume, you know, we've had answers or questions about the eight point grid for multiple episodes in a row. I wouldn't be surprised if we got to talk about accessibility for a few weeks in a row. So, okay, I'm cool with it. Yeah, me too. All right, Marshall. So it's been a long time since we've caught up about cool things. It has been. All right, I'll go first this week. So this week, I want to shout out a new app by an independent developer named Sindra Soros. He is the most prolific open source developer on GitHub, I think. Sindra has uh, over a thousand repositories. Some of them are some of the most popular on GitHub, just prolific. So anyways, Sindra just released a Mac application called Dato, which is a better menu bar clock with calendar and time zones baked right in. And this is just one of those rare examples where a third-party application so far surpasses the stock implementation in macOS, that it's a no-brainer to install this right away. So the main thing that Dato does is you can override the time item in your Max menu bar. And when you click on the Dato time application, the dropdown shows you your full calendar. You can add time zones. So if you're working with people in different time zones, uh, and you can just scrub through the calendar as well. So you can just really quickly jump around and actually understand, you know, dates and times uh, much easier than you could in in the default time picker that macOS provides. Cool. Yeah, I actually use iStat menus. Uh-huh. I think that's what's called. Also made by Mark Edwards, I believe. Yeah, yeah. iStat's great as well. It does the that clock stuff for the time, but it also gives you better battery states and lets you see like network connectivity and your uh, CPU usage and your RAM usage and your storage. Right. So we'll have links to those in the show notes, but definitely recommend Dato by Sendrosaurus. Well done. Sorry, I just like shouted out a competing app. No, no, yeah. no, but I, I actually use iSAT as well for those other things. I use it for the like memory and CPU stuff, temperature. Yeah, Dato's clock is better than iSAT Mini's clock. Yeah, and, and I like the, the time zone support as well because I have coworkers that are in various time zones. So being able to just quickly see, oh, it's nighttime there. Great. For sure. Yeah. All right. Cool thing, Brian. I you've inspired me to to share another menu bar, like Mac menu bar thing. Oh, hit me. Are you familiar with Bartender? I'm not. Oh my god, Brian. Oh, let me blow your mind. <laughs> okay. This is so good. Bartender is the best. Okay. So it's basically a way to manage all of the little icons that sit up in the menu bar uh, on your Mac in the top right. If if you're like me, you have a bunch of shit that you run that has a menu bar icon up there, and it starts to look like a crazy line of weird icons and it gets really distracting. So what Bartender does is, is it it's its own menu bar icon and you can make it look different. I like the the ellipsis, the three dots, but it allows you to hide all those other icons behind clicking one icon, right? Oh, okay. So like 
basically by default, all I have in my in my menu bar is the time, the battery, and I use iStat menus to show like a date icon. So it's like you know the, the calendar date in a square, and then next to that is three dots, and then everything else lives inside there. And you can hold command to drag and reorder all of these icons. So if they're not in an order that makes sense to you, that you like, you can reorder them. That is like alone worth worth getting this for. But when you you can choose in its preferences what apps go inside of Bartender, what ones stay outside. And then there's a, a third option where if there's activity on one of the apps that's hidden, you can have it pop out and show up. So like Dropbox or you know a, a file syncing thing. While it's doing its thing, it's not doing it hidden. It shows up outside of the outside of the three dot menu, and then when it's done, it goes back in. Love it so far. Okay, that's it. That's basically all it is. Like it's <laughs> okay. just a way to rearrange, hide, and you know organize your your mini bar icons. Well, I have one suggestion, which would actually be a nice little side project for you if you're interested. Is they desperately need a new app icon. Oh, yeah. So that doesn't matter. All you see is the three dots. It's <laughs> I like, know it, it doesn't matter, Marshall, but I'm just saying it's a thing that you could do. <laughs> it's, I think it's made by an engineer, not by a designer. Like The functionality is great. And there, there are several options to, to uh, choose for the menu icon itself. So I think by default, it's like, like a bartender, like a guy with a tie or something. Yeah, I think by default, like it's either... A bow tie, or or the, the like a, a guy with a bow tie, or a waistcoat. I, f- I forget exactly what it is, but you can choose your own custom image if you want to. But I, I like the one that's more, just like the three dots, and it's very subtle. Just cleans everything up really nicely. This is really really nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can set up hotkeys. You can even search through your menu items. You can if you if you control click on the on the icon you can start typing and it'll show you like so if i search for dropbox it'll hide everything else and just show me that one icon it's really nice man uh i've just installed it set it up and i hid like six icons so that's great mm-hmm. love it cool thing all right so everyone's menu bar is getting an upgrade this week oh yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because i wouldn't have had a cool thing otherwise <laughs> i'll help you out bud all right cool well that's it that's episode 306 we hope you enjoyed listening let us know what you thought on twitter we're at design details fm Of course, if uh, you want to sponsor the show, we're looking for sponsors for this fall and winter. If you are hiring or launching a new product, get in touch. DM us on Twitter or you can email me, hi at brianlevin.com, and we will be happy to set something up. Otherwise, if you need more podcasts, go to spec.fm. We've got lots of shows for designers and developers just like you, also produced and mastered by our editors and producers, Sarah and Drew. Thank you, Sarah and Drew, for another week. Go to spec.fm to hear more shows, uh, including Layout FM, hosted by Rafa and Kevin, our design friends who also talk about what's going on, the latest happenings in the design world. Uh, And of course, leave us an iTunes review. If you enjoyed listening, those reviews tell Apple that you enjoy the show and it helps Apple surface the podcast for other designers just like you. And if uh, we see those new reviews, we'll, we'll try and read them out on the show in the future. So thank you to everyone who's left reviews so far. We really appreciate those. Thanks, everybody. Anything else, Marshall? Uh, that's about it. I'm, I'm happy to be back in real time, Brian. This is, this is a good episode, I think. I, I love answering user questions. Yeah, yeah. Listener questions. <laughs> Fuck. User research questions. <laughs> well, I'll be back in New York next week, so we'll, I'll actually have a mic stand, and it'll be hopefully 100% back to normal. But uh, yeah, good to be back in like the news cycle so we can talk about what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Some cool, cool stuff about to happen, too. Yes. And uh, in the time that this episode was recorded, I have iOS 13 beta 4 installed. So 
I'll see how this works. We'll have more to talk about next week. All right. Cool. cool. All right, man. All right, cool. See ya. Bye.